Hey, welcome to Table Flippers Podcast, Ministry of Greater Worship Christian Church in Lancaster, California. I am your host, Apostle Robert Enos. This is where we talk about the issue the church faces and how the church should respond to those issues. Here we will talk about doctrine, theology, politics, social and cultural issues, and how the church is to deal with these things. So get ready for a large dose of truth and get ready for the tables to be flipped. Here at Table Flippers, table flipping is what we do. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. I'm glad that you're back. Welcome back for another exciting podcast from Table Flippers. It is me, Robert Dinas, your host. Hey, I want to touch upon something that I began a few podcasts ago when I was speaking about a biblical worldview. I wanted to do part two because it's an important issue, I believe, in the body of Christ because it's important to God. God's word is always important to him. Always important to him. And it's important that we take him right at his word and that we do his word and that we live his word. And a lot of Christians, of course, will say, well, I do that. And trust me, believe me, when we get down to the nitty-gritty, uh, many of us, I'm not going to say all of us, but many of us do not do the Word of God simply because we really don't know the Word of God. So I want to get into this. Just a little recap from, uh, again, the other Biblical Worldview podcast. When Barna Research Group did a study on this subject, Biblical Worldview, and they talked to a lot of Christians and such, they found out that among those who identified, now as I read these people or these groups, this is just how they identified, okay? So people who identified as born-again believers, they found only 9% had a true world, uh, biblical worldview. Those who simply identified as Protestant, only 7% of them had a biblical worldview. Mainline Protestants, only 2%. Catholics, less than one-half of 1%. Non-denominational Protestants, 13%. And by the way, that's the largest in all of this. Those who identified as Pentecostals, 10%. And those who identified as Baptist, 8%. I find this disturbing on many levels. And let me tell you what's happened with me just recently. Had a few people come against me and really start um, bashing me and talking about even my podcast and some of the people that I had um, been associated with just recently. And they really get nasty and ugly. People that I've never met before. As a matter of fact, people, they found these things on Facebook and they're not even on my friends list on Facebook. So these are what they call trolls. People trolling me and... Uh, digging up dirt. I think they think it's dirt and uh, really lying about me. There was a, some absolute lies there. So it's interesting because one of them I know goes to a local church. One of these guys goes to a local church, claims to be a Christian, even claims to be conservative and yet has a problem with me, a Christian and a conservative and thinks I'm a hater and all of that because I'm simply pointing out truth. Well, I guess uh, the truth of the Word of God is not liked by this gentleman, which just by itself shows he does not have a biblical worldview. So 
those of us who do have a stronger biblical worldview are going to irritate those who claim to be Christian but don't really have a biblical worldview. And the other person, I don't even know who this person is, some kind of uh, Karen out there or something. But anyways, the point is, this is really sad. These numbers are really sad. Our numbers actually across the board for all of these should be 100%, 100%, 100%, 100%. So what makes these numbers so low? Well, number one, of course, bad teaching, bad, horrible teaching in the body of Christ. Horrible teaching. And that goes across the board. I am not pointing at any one group, any like the Protestants, but not the mainline Protestants, not the Catholics, but not the Pentecostals. This is terrible for all of us. This should be eye-opening. This should cause us to be sober-minded. Pastors and church leaders, you've got to understand, you can't listen to these, look at these numbers and listen to this and just assume, well, that's them, not me. Because trust me, your church and the people in your church would identify as one of these groups. Maybe they'll say, well, I'm a Protestant. I'm mainline Protestant. I'm non-denominational Protestant. I'm, I'm a Baptist. I'm a Pentecostal. They're going to identify with one of these groups. And chances are your church would not have different numbers than this. Now, before anybody goes and says, oh, you just think you're so good because your numbers are better. Well, number one, my numbers are better at my church. But nonetheless, nonetheless, I'm going to assume for just a moment that these numbers, I'll even take the highest, 13%, that out of every 100 people in my church, only 13 of them have a true biblical worldview. If that's the case, if that's the case, then I have failed as a church leader. I have failed. God has called me to be an apostle. I am a failed apostle. I have a teaching gift. I am a failed teacher. I have a prophetic gift. I am a failed uh, prophetic voice in the church if I can't produce closer to 100%, if not 100%, of people in my church that have a true, full, biblical worldview. I am not trying to throw any of you under the bus by yourself because if I did, I'd be under that same bus because I have to take this to heart as well as you should have to take this to heart, especially you pastors and church leaders, but all Christians. Because listen, you people that go to church, sit under a pastor week after week after week. Yes, he comes under a greater scrutiny as the word of God says. Let not, let not all of you become teachers because they come under a stricter judgment is what the Bible tells us. But nonetheless, Christian, you are still responsible for reading the Word of God and doing the Word of God and producing the fruit thereof. So if just in and of your own studies, if you can't get yourself to 100% biblical worldview, then you're just as guilty in that sense than any pastor or preacher. You can't throw it just at the pastors or preachers. I'm talking to pastors and preachers because they're my peers. And we've got to do better, pastor. We've got to do better, preacher. We've got to do better, bishop. We've got to do better, five-fold minister. Because if these are the numbers we're turning out, we are failing God and we're failing the people that he entrusts us with. Let's move along. I want to talk to you about something because one of the reasons why we have this such low percentage of people in our churches with a true biblical worldview is yes, the teaching, but it's teaching that comes at it 
as if, now listen to me and listen to me very clearly on this. We have this terrible thing in the body of Christ today that says, if it's Old Testament, we don't, we basically don't have to listen to it because we're under grace and that's law. That is one of the most ignorant statements. And I know some of you are scratching your head right now, but the Bible says, yes, the Bible says those words, but it doesn't mean what you often or what many are preaching, what it, what they say it means. They think that everything from Genesis to Malachi is done away with because that's Old Testament. That's where the law is. It doesn't pertain to us. That's so stupid and foolish. I'm just going to be honest with you. That's so ridiculous. And I'm just going to be honest with you. Christians, if your pastor teaches that, you need to get out of that church. That's a doctrine of demons. I can prove it to you from Scripture. If you give me a few minutes. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 24 and 25. I'm going to start with a New Testament passage. Peter, remember, he walked with Jesus. So if anybody knew the heart of Jesus, it was Peter. Now, I believe Paul had this great understanding and revelation of grace. But Peter was one of the closest to Jesus in his earthly ministry. So Peter really had the heart of God and really understood the forgiveness of Jesus because he certainly needed it a lot. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24 and 25, it says this, Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away. Verse 25 says, But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. So, what Peter is doing here is he's quoting an Old Testament passage. He's actually quoting Isaiah 40, verse 7 and 8. And in verse 25 there, he says, The word, or at least the way it's translated, the word of the Lord endures forever. And again, he's quoting an Old Testament passage. This is extremely important to understand. Because if Peter is quoting an Old Testament passage and he's putting it out there like this is still standing today, then guess what? That Old Testament passage is still standing today. Peter was writing this after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, clearly into what many call the church age, which there's no such thing, by the way, it's the kingdom age, but we'll talk about that later. So we're in this thing, again, that many call the church age. So if, if the Old Testament is done away for us today, it, was all, it would have been done away for Peter when he was writing this. But Peter didn't think so because he's quoting it as if it's a right here, right now, understanding and revelation that the word of God endures forever. So let's read Isaiah 40, verses 7 and 8, just so you can see this. Verse 7, the grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. Verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So the way it's translated with Peter, the word of God endures forever. And the way it's translated with Isaiah 40, verse 8, or the word of our God stands forever. So just so you understand that it, they didn't tweak it one for the old and one for the new, and it somehow changed a little bit. It's just the way one was Hebrew, one was Greek. 
the word from Isaiah 40, verse 8, where it says stands, it literally means to rise up. And the word forever literally means forever. It rises up and it's forever. It means everlasting, evermore, always. So the word of God, you could say it like this, never changes. What it is right this at this moment, it will be this a thousand years from now. Peter quotes that. And when he says the word, it will endure. It literally means to remain or to abide, to be held or to be kept. It speaks about continuing forever. It does not perish. That's what that word means. And when he says the word forever, it remember, endures. And the word forever literally means forever or an unbroken age. Now, I got that straight out of the lexicon that breaks down and and. and defines the words from the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic that are in the Word of God. So both Old Testament and New Testament say that the Word of God stands and endures forever. It's everlasting, meaning it cannot change. The Word of our God cannot change. Now, those of you who are the anti-law people, um, I don't know how you could even say that you're misunderstanding some of the things that Paul wrote about not being under law, completely misunderstood it. When the Bible makes it very, very, very clear that God's word never changes, ever. It's impossible. To change God's word is to change God. And if God is changeable, then he, he isn't the righteous, solid savior of mankind. He couldn't be if he wavered. God's word is yes, and his word is amen. I want to point out something to you out of Ezekiel and then back with Peter in the book of Acts. This is so good when you understand it, and this is why I'm, I'm, tr I'm trying. I'm getting a little teachy mode today for a purpose and a reason. In Ezekiel 4, starting at verse 12, this is an interesting passage where God is asking Ezekiel to do something as a prophetic statement against the people of Israel who have fallen into sin. So in Ezekiel 4, starting at verse 12, he tells Ezekiel, You shall eat it as barley cakes and bake it using fuel of human waste in their sight. Now, by the way, that was going against the law, the Torah, to use human waste to heat, uh, to make a fire to cook food. Verse 13, the Lord said, You shall... So shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles where I will drive them. So I said, Ah, oh, Lord God, indeed, I have never defiled myself from my youth till now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has abominable flesh ever come into my mouth. Then he said to me, or God said, See, I am giving you cow dung instead of human waste, and you shall prepare your bread over it. So this is interesting. What Ezekiel is saying is, listen, I've never broken the law in, the, in regards to these things. I cannot use human waste. God is asking Ezekiel to do something, and Ezekiel is saying, no. Why? Because your word, God, speaks against it. And God had to go with his word. <laughs> Listen to this. God had to go with his word. And what you're going to find 
and we'll see this a little bit more clearly, this was a test, and Ezekiel passed the test. Ezekiel put God's Torah, his law, first, and God honored it. Now let's go to Acts 10. This is the story of Peter and Cornelius when he's invited to go to Cornelius' house. And sometimes we miss something so profound in this story. And yet it's so, it's too easy to not miss it. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. Anyways, Acts 10, starting at verse 10. It says, Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. This is speaking of Peter. And saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Verse 14, Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Pay attention to that because people miss this. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Verse 16. This was done three times, then the object was taken up into heaven again. Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. Now, if you're approaching this from a modern Western Christian point of view, you're going to look at this and go, Oh, so God was calling all those what used to be unclean animals clean, so Peter should have eaten one. He should have went and had a ham sandwich or a seagull barbecue or elephant steaks because those are all unclean animals. But if you approach it the way the Bible was written, you would keep reading and allow the Bible to tell you what the Bible really means. Because let me show you something in verse 28. Same chapter, same story. Same chapter, same story. In chapter, or I'm sorry, in verse 28, it says, Peter says to them, You know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. Yet God has shown me that I should call no person defiled or ritually unclean. Now remember, the vision was these animals. Now kill and eat. But I have never done this. I will never eat eaten anything unclean. What God has cleansed, you must not call common, is what God told Peter. Nowhere in this story and nowhere in Scripture did God ever call what was previously, the animals that were previously unclean, did he ever call them clean? Ever. It was not about the animals. It was about the Gentiles. Because nowhere in Scripture does he ever say that the Gentiles are unclean. And even if you can find a passage that alludes to that, because of the blood of Jesus, the Gentiles are being made clean. And if you, again, keep following this story, what you'll find is that Peter goes to preach to them. And even before he gets to what we call the altar call in our Western Christian mentality, even before they were saved 
by our standards. The Holy Spirit falls upon Cornelius and his household, and they all start speaking in tongues. Why? Because God cleansed them. God called them clean. They were truly saved. He never said that about any of those animals that were let down in, in that sheet. Now, why is this important? Why is this important? Because just like Ezekiel, Ezekiel was tested. Remember, the people were in sin. And he was saying, they're going to go to another nation. They're going to be taken away captive. And they're going to eat their defiled bread. So what you are doing is a prophetic statement by eating defiled bread, bread cooked over human waste that's de that'll defile it by you eating it here you're prophesying against them and ezekiel says no lord no lord i can't do that because of your word your word so he gave him something else to do it so what god was testing ezekiel is you're like the major prophet right now in israel they're all in sin. Are you going to be in sin too? They threw away my word. Are you going to throw my word? They're being disobedient to me. Are you going to be disobedient to me? So here's this test to see if Ezekiel was going to be obedient to God and to the word of the Lord. Fast forward it to Peter. Same scenario. There's, there's the word of God, the word of Jesus. Salvation by his blood is going to the Jews because it was to the Jew first, then to the Gentiles. But now God wanted to break this out of just going to the Jews, to the Gentiles. And how does he get Peter to change his mindset about the Gentiles? By touching upon something that he knows. This, these unclean, unkosher foods. Kill and eat. I can't do that. Now I'm paraphrasing, of course. That goes against your word. What I have called clean, no longer call unclean or, or common. But he never called those animals clean. Never. But when Peter goes, gets the invitation, and then goes to Cornelius' house, he realized, oh, this is what God was talking about. But Peter was entrusted with that and entrusted with Cornelius and, and his household, thus the opening of the door to the Gentiles, because he passed the test in this trance and in this vision. He did not kill and eat what God said was unclean. But it opened his eyes to something else. The Gentiles, who God says now, is clean. And you can go with them. You see, many today are failing the test. Big time. We have the word of God and the word of God is clear. My word doesn't change. It endures forever. Says that in the Old Testament, says that in the New Testament. And then what do we have preachers today doing? Oh, the law doesn't pertain to us. Let me explain to you what, the, what that really means if you have an ear to hear. Let's see how many of you have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying. The Jewish people have this issue or this problem with putting what they call, in some Jewish circles, what they call fences around the law or the commands of God. For instance, we read in the scriptures not to take the Lord's name in vain, so they put fences around it so much where people can't even say the name of God. Even today, they can't say or even spell God like we would G-O-D. They have a G, an asterisk D, even though that's not his name. But so they don't cross that barrier 
of taking the Lord's name in vain, they put a fence around it, a law unto a law. So when Paul comes along and says, you are no longer under the law, and he says it's impossible to keep the law in all these things, that's what he was referring to, was the fences, not God's word, because Paul, nobody has the right to discredit, push away, put down, or take away God's word. It endures forever. It stands forever. Both Old Testament, New Testament. When Peter was saying that and quoting that, he was quoting Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet. So what word would he have been speaking about? The Old Testament and absolutely everything in it. Let me tell you something. Your righteousness does not take you away from the law. The law is what makes you righteous. Hello, come on. Grace is the power. Now, I'm going to say something to you guys. You greasy grace people are not going to like, but I'm just going to tell you it's the truth because it's in the word of God and the word of God stands forever. This isn't my opinion. This is the word of God. Grace is what teaches you how to live right. Grace is what empowers you to keep the law. When the Bible says you are no longer under the law, but you are under grace because for a season, and this is in Galatians, the law became your tutor. When you've mastered the law, it becomes your servant, not the other way around. You are no longer under the law because it is now your servant. You are the servant of grace. And grace empowers you to keep the law. That's the difference between a child of God and a son of God. A child of God is under law. A son of God is under grace. And if he's under grace, he's mastered the law. That's Galatians chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 4 in a nutshell. It's unfortunate that we all have the same Bible. We can all read the same scriptures. And we can't come up to the same conclusions because most will reject what's actually right there in front of them. So let's go again, right back to what Peter said, quoting Isaiah. The word of God endures forever. From Genesis 1-1 all the way through to the end of Revelation. It's that important. Why are people not developing a true biblical worldview because so many pastors and so many teachers and so many Christians are pushing away a huge portion of the of the word of God saying it doesn't pertain to us anymore it's not for today how can you develop a biblical worldview if you're not using all of the bible hello come on how can you really face the world and change the world to a biblical standard if you've pushed away some two-thirds of the Bible. No wonder this world is going to hell in a handbasket. And these grace teachers and these righteousness teachers think they're on the cutting edge of something really goofy and something really cool, but really it is goofy. And it's taken a lot of people to hell. I've personally seen it with my own eyes. People get a hold of this so-called grace teaching, this greasy grace teaching or this righteousness teaching. 
and they were ex-alcoholics and now they're back into alcohol because they say, why do, should I not drink when I'm under grace and I'm righteous anyways? Divorce. Why should I not do the things I want to do and be happy myself if I'm under grace and I'm righteous anyways? So they treat their spouse horrible and they end up in divorce. I couldn't tell you how many times I've seen this. Kids all messed up. Kids having kids out of wedlock. Living together, not getting married. In alcohol, in drugs. And still going to church. And still believing they're under grace. Still believing that they're righteous. Still believing that they're okay. When they're breaking, not even Torah. They're breaking the commands of the New Testament. Like, here's one. This is from Paul. Paul, the guy with the greatest revelation of what grace is, says this in Ephesians 5, 18. Do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Do not get drunk. Do not get drunk. And I think that by principle, that would cover drugs, all alcohol, anything that could mess with your brain and your capacity to think clearly. Do not get drunk with wine. Now, if I'm righteous and I'm uh, under grace, why would God care? And that word there where it says debauchery, it literally, it's an interesting word. It means against your salvation. So when we are drunk or high or do anything of that nature, it works against our salvation. So what are these guys doing when they start teaching this nonsense that somehow God's word changed, somehow God's word doesn't mean what it really means or what it really says. People are falling back into old habits or never breaking old habits. They remain and they can go out and party and get drunk and get wasted. And I've seen this. This isn't just something I heard about or I might think I've witnessed this. And every time they cross the line with their alcohol or any other substance, it's working against their salvation. Now, how many times do you have to get drunk before you lose your salvation? I don't know. That's something we have to take up with God. But maybe that's why Paul says, do not get drunk. Maybe that's why Paul says, do not cross that line. Maybe it is one drink. I don't think it is. But I'm not going to take that chance. See, because I'm under grace, and because I'm under grace, it empowers me to be pleasing to my God and to do His commands. Why do I know this? Because God's Word, God's Word stands forever. It endures forever. It'll never change. It'll never break. Ezekiel knew this. Isaiah knew this. Peter knew this. Jesus knew this. Paul knew this. Maybe it's time this generation starts figuring it out. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us here at Table Flippers. I would love to hear from you. You can find my contact information at www.gwcclancaster.org. That's gwcclancaster.org. Please let us know how we are doing. I look forward to hearing your thoughts and comments. Have a fantastic day.